Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I am Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have the perfect guest with us today to delve into the hugely consequential and increasingly strained relationship between Israel and Russia amid the backdrop of the Ukraine war. Ksenia Svetlova is here with us today. Ksenia is a former Knesset member for the Zionist Union Party, a former journalist who has reported from all across the Middle East, and currently is a director of the Israel Middle East program at the Mitvim Think Tank and a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Before we get to my conversation with Ksenia, just a few quick thoughts of my own by way of context about Israel, Russia, and Ukraine. I think it's fair to say it's been a rough week for specifically Israel-Russia ties, as I discussed with Ksenia, but we should mention that after the conversation was recorded, we got word that an Israeli delegation will finally be leaving tonight, Wednesday, for Moscow for talks to try to, I guess, smooth things over with the Kremlin. So that's perhaps an indication that a de-escalation or a thaw might be on its way. But I think the mere fact that this quote-unquote crisis in relations between Israel and Russia has become a major diplomatic and political and potentially geopolitical problem for Israel just shows how complex and sensitive the Israeli approach to the entire Ukraine war was, is, and will remain for as long as this war is with us, unfortunately. Russia has the potential to impact, for the worse, a lot of core Israeli interests, like the fate of Jewish communities in Russia and the post-Soviet space, uh, Iran's military presence in Syria and other areas of the Middle East, and even internal Israeli politics and the identity of the next Israeli prime minister ahead of the election in November, which I get into with Ksenia. Uh, in other words, the issues at play here go beyond Israel's support or not for Ukraine, which is diplomatic and humanitarian primarily at the moment, um, which I'd argue has overall been decent, but it's obviously short of what some critics of the Israeli government's approach would like to have seen and still see, i.e. full-throated, unabashed support for Kyiv, uh, potentially including actual military hardware. I think it's very easy to say and write such critiques, blasting the Israeli policy of what's come to be known as uh, dancing through the raindrops between Russia and Ukraine, this balancing act, but just be ready, I think, for a possible storm. Let's get to Ksenia Svetlova. Hi, Ksenia. Welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Neri. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's really our pleasure. We've been trying to have you on for quite some time. Uh, so really, uh, thank you for taking the time. Um, a lot to get into this week with, I think, inarguably still the most important story in the world today, uh, which is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I want to start here, Ksenia, with your permission uh, to give us a sense of the state of play in the Ukraine war, which obviously started on February 24th and is now entering its sixth month. Uh, from the outside, at least according to the reporting, it seems like we've entered a different phase of the war. So if at the start it was a total Russian assault on Kyiv and much of Ukraine's territory, then now, at least it seems like it's mostly shifted to a war of attrition in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region. Do you agree with this overall assessment? And what do you think the state of play is right now uh, in the war? 
Well, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, it seems that for the last uh, two months, uh, the Russians are focusing uh, mainly on two areas in Ukraine that are close to their border. Uh, this is the eastern part of Ukraine. And there they have uh, moderate successes and accomplishments. However, still, they are progressing. They are very slow and they are still unable to declare the full control uh, of Donbass region. Uh, and uh, there is also uh, extensive warfare in the south. Uh, in the south, what is interesting is that the Russians are actually getting ready for the counterattack of the Ukrainians, who uh, allegedly plan to retake the city of Kherson, that was one of the first that was occupied by the Russian army. They plan to retake it back from the Russians. We still don't know when it will take place, but in the last few days, the Ukrainian army is bombing the bridges, uh, and it's regrouping, so uh, there might be some signs that they are actually uh, trying to uh, retake uh, this uh, city back. And what is happening in the city that is controlled by Russians, um, the Russians were trying to perform their a referendum um, to basically uh, uh, annex uh, this area and uh, proclaim... Uh, and we'll proclaim it, you know, or, or either, you know, a, you know, Russian-controlled area uh, or an independent republic, quasi-independent mm -hmm. republic, uh, just like they did in 2014 uh, with uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, so um, another thing uh, that is worth to mention uh, is that uh, focusing on these uh, mainly two areas, south and east, uh, doesn't prevent from the Russian army occasionally to shell uh, and to murder civilians uh, in such cities as Vinitsa, uh, also sometimes in Kiev. Uh, there was a shelling of Odessa a few times during the last few days. Uh, so uh, in this regard, you know, the Ukrainians themselves, they describe these methods uh, as pure terrorism uh, because uh, along with the uh, infighting uh, that is happening on the battlefield, on the front, uh, they are targeting all the time uh, the civilians uh, in uh, uh, you know, in the more remote area, in uh, the center or the western parts. Right. And from your sense, do you think Putin has given up his, I guess, initial goal of, uh, you know, driving to Kiev, trying to physically topple the Ukrainian government? Is he, has he, uh, let's say, made his goals more realistic, I guess, only focusing on the east and the south? Or is this just a temporary phase and he might, he might actually move westward when he gets a chance? It might be just a temporary phase, unfortunately. Um, uh, it's not that uh, the occupation of the south and the east uh, uh, is acceptable for the Ukrainians. Uh, but uh, I think that we should not hold our breath. Uh, the tactics had changed, uh, the strategies had changed, but the ultimate goal is, of course, the control of Ukraine, whether by military occupation or by changing a regime. Uh, whatever come first. Uh, so uh, they still uh, uh, did not uh, uh, let it go. Um, and uh, I think that the most important uh, uh, perhaps uh, element uh, of this uh, would be to see if, um, you know, the, the uh, city of Kherson will be retaken uh, by the Ukrainian uh, army uh, by August or September. What will be the next step? Uh, because uh, then, you know, it will prove that... Uh, also, the second step of the war, the second phase of the war, uh, did not bring accomplishments. Mm. And uh, the problem, you know, PR problem for Putin would be 
to sell this, this very sorry state of affairs to his public at home. Because for now, the goals didn't change. They still demand denazification. Whatever this means, they still demand uh, the demilitarization of the Ukrainian army uh, and significant change um, uh, of the regime. How you can accomplish this if you cannot even defend uh, the cities that you took in the beginning of the war, uh, it's beyond me. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, this will be a turning point in which uh, is evaluated as a very dangerous one uh, because uh, this can drive uh, an unexpected and dangerous development, such as, for example, the much-discussed use of the tactical nuclear weapons. Right, right, right. Uh, who knows what Putin is liable to do if he's actually continuing to lose on the on the battlefield. Exactly. Um, final question, just in terms of the overall state of the war. Uh, you know, I get uh, reports from my journalist friends who were in Ukraine at the start of the war and are now uh, going back for subsequent tours uh, in, in Ukraine. And they say that much of the country, and especially Kyiv, has if not returned to normal, then a certain normalcy has returned to at least parts of Ukraine. Is that your sense too, that, uh, you know, from this kind of total warfare of the early months of the war, that at least some semblance of normal life has returned to at least parts of Ukraine? Well, some life, of course, returns uh, to, especially to the, you know, larger cities such as Kiev. Uh, and there is an attempt uh, to have uh, this, uh, uh, at least a taste uh, uh, of a normal life. Uh, but this is anything but normal, of course, because you have millions of internally displaced refugees all across the country. The economic situation in Ukraine is just getting worse. And we get a reminder of this, uh, uh, of the big credit uh, agencies uh, that uh, degraded uh, the creditability of uh, Ukraine uh, just this week. Uh, and... Uh, uh, there is this uncertainty regarding the possibility of exporting the grain. Uh, it was discussed uh, thoroughly uh, in the media, you know, but still, you know, after the uh, uh, optimism of the agreement that was signed between um, UN and Russia and Turkey, uh, and then there was the Odessa shelling, of course, uh, that uh, exactly targeted the uh, seaport uh, where the grain is uh, stored right now. Uh, but what happens next? You know, so uh, the story journalistically may be over, but the big story uh, still uh, is ongoing. You know, so uh, the economy of Ukraine depends also uh, on this uh, export of uh, grains uh, that is stored right now in quantities, large quantities in their ports. Uh, and they need to get them out. Also, the world needs to get, uh, you know, this uh, grain because to prevent world hunger. Uh, and uh, everything still uh, is uh, very much... Uh, uh, you know, it's a more of a question mark. We don't know what will happen next. So that's why I'm saying that even if there is some visibility of normality, which, of course, we know very well from Israel, Neri, you know, you mm -hmm. and I know it well. After the shellings and after the heavy fighting in Gaza, uh, we drink uh, lattes in wherever we live. I live in Modin, for example. Uh, or, you know, you, you go to Tel Aviv and you see that the coffee shops are packed. It doesn't mean that the life returned to normal, though. Right. Right, right. Uh, that's well put, and it's worth reminding ourselves uh, now entering the six months of the war that uh, it's not over, uh, and it's far from normal, uh, even even in parts of Ukraine that uh, that I guess are quieter than they were a few months ago. Um, Ksenia, I wanted to shift to the Israel angle uh, with regard to Russia and the Ukraine war, 
uh, over the past week, and I'm sure many of our listeners have seen this in the news, growing tensions, growing tensions between Israel and Russia. Uh, and hearing is set for tomorrow. We're recording this on Wednesday, so tomorrow would be Thursday. A hearing in Russian court for the Jewish agency branch in Russia, which may be ordered to shut down. Uh, for those who don't know, the Jewish Agency is a nearly 100-year-old NGO that helps Jews from all over the world uh, immigrate to Israel. Uh, also, as of now, uh, Wednesday, an Israeli delegation that the Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, wanted to send to Moscow has been uh, effectively refused visas. So my first question to you, Ksenia, what do you make of these latest developments? Uh, we're also seeing, I guess, mixed messages from Moscow. Uh, some officials maintain that it's strictly an internal legal matter with regard to the Jewish agency in Russia, uh, while other officials are saying, or hinting at least, that it's a political move by the Kremlin to, I guess, push back against Israel in general and against uh, Lapid in particular for, I guess, past comments criticizing Russia in Ukraine. So what do you think? So, you know, I guess without, uh, you know, entering uh, uh, the Putin's uh, mind uh, and, uh, you know, uh, seeing exactly, you know, what uh, uh, what is his mindset uh, about uh, the whole thing, uh, you know, it seems to me that uh, this uh, development, uh, the possible closure of the Jewish agency and also other Jewish uh, organizations, by the way, who also mm. received this letters uh, from the Ministry of Justice of uh, Russian Federation um, that uh, said that uh, they are violating the existing law. They have uh, some um, data uh, uh, gathering uh, and uh, and uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, not allowed according to the existing law. So about this, I have to tell you that um, while in Russia, you know, I was born in Moscow. I, I immigrated to Israel with my family when I was 14, but I still remember very well uh, that, uh, you know, the grown-ups used to say, uh, the, the 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 most important thing is to have uh, the person uh, who you want to put in jail. Uh, the clause in the law you will find it after that. You know, so uh, it doesn't matter what the law says because the law was not applicable. Uh, it seems uh, in the last uh, you know year or two years or five years, the Jewish mm -hmm. agency didn't change anything of its activity. Uh, it, it it was the, exactly the same as always. Um, but it's uh, actually it's a part of the uh, warfare of uh, Putin, uh, Putin's regime against the civil society in Russia. So any voice, uh, and it doesn't matter who you are, you know, you could be, of course, a human rights uh, activist. And this is, uh, of course, uh, you know, it's something that regime doesn't want around. Uh, but it could be also, uh, you know, um, you know, NGO that promotes the rights of women in the family and therefore also uh, targets, you know, the uh, regime's uh, um, orthodox uh, view on the roles, uh, traditional roles of the family and so on. And it could be the Jewish agency uh, that uh, has been seen, has been treated with suspicion for a long time. It didn't start uh, today, you know. So uh, as somebody who has many friends who had worked in the Russian chapter of the Jewish agency and can tell you there were harassments and they were closed, followed by the FSB. Uh, and there was an attempt to close the Jewish agency back in 96. Nobody remembers this. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are still, you know, some uh, people who work there and they remember it very well. And they described this ordeal in the social media in the last few days. You know, so this is part of this. A second part is, of course, the political pressure. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the, the pressure mounted uh, between Russia and Israel since the beginning of 2022. Uh, it started with Syria, you know, because uh, 
you know, uh, it, you couldn't miss it. You know, the tone became more aggressive. Uh, the criticism uh, uh, of Israel for allegedly acting in the Syrian skies uh, and uh, targeting the Iranian uh, uh, warehouses uh, and so on. Uh, all of this, um, it took another kind of form uh, and um, you could feel the change. You could feel it even before the war. So when the war, the war started, you know, Israel was trying very hard to go with a balancing act. I personally believed that it's impossible because, you know, especially in this time of, uh, of uh, a, a war and a tragedy, um, things have become very bright. Uh, you are either here or there. You cannot be in the middle. Uh, when something like this happens, you have to take a position. You have to take a stance. Uh, and uh, I think that Russia was displeased, generally. Uh, not only Lapid, you know, but in general, you know, the uh, humanitarian aid uh, that uh, Israel uh, provided to Ukraine uh, and uh, the demonstrations that uh, take, take part here uh, uh, close to the Russian embassy uh, and so on. You know, the activism of uh, people who are uh, trying to cancel the visits of the Russian artists uh, here, uh, the criticism that is, was expressed in the media and so on. I think in general, you know, the picture that the Russians got is that Israel is more supportive of Ukraine, definitely, yes, than, uh, than of Russia. Mm -hmm. Even if physically it didn't mean uh, that there will be any significant change of policy. I mean, Israel still doesn't uh, supply weapons, uh, even defensive, uh, to Ukraine, and uh, it still uh, didn't introduce formally any sanctions against Russian firms or oligarchs or whatsoever. You know, so... Uh, uh, the visibility was that of support of Ukraine. The policy didn't change. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, this uh, in this move uh, that perhaps was planned in any case, you know, perhaps it was something that was planned all along. Uh, but the timing was, of course, you know, to surprise uh, Yair Lapid uh, as a new prime minister. It uh, The whole story erupted four days after he became prime minister. And the second part of the story, yes, the... Uh, news about uh, having a hearing uh, in the court in uh, Moscow, uh, that happened after Putin get, get back from Iran. So you see right. that the Russian-Iranian alliance is growing, it's becoming tighter, uh, and definitely, you know, I think the Russians understand that, yes, Israel is in another camp. Uh, it's a, a pro-Western, American-led camp. So it's interesting that it's a, perhaps a combination of internal factors in Russia, bilateral issues in terms of Israel-Russia and the Ukraine war, and perhaps even regional uh, dimension as well. What do, you, what do you expect will happen, I guess, tomorrow at the hearing and in the coming weeks? You know, will Putin actually take the move to, to shutter the Jewish agency? And, and how do you think Jerusalem will respond to that? Lapid has already issued, I guess, veiled threats in terms of there being severe consequences. So, you know, um, the... The, what is happening with the Jewish agency um, is it is a serious crisis, you know. So uh, it doesn't have implications for Israel's security. That's right, uh, but there are of course implications for the Russian Jews and so on and so on. So um, Israel is taking it very seriously, and I really commend uh, the Prime Minister for not succumbing to the threats, not crawling to Moscow, you know, to try to make some uh, shady deal. Uh, which was something that perhaps, uh, you know, other prime ministers uh, uh, were more capable of doing it without naming yeah. names. Uh, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, he understands. Uh, just like 
you know, the Baltic countries understand, Poland understands, other countries that have common border with Russia understand, Finland. Uh, you have to you have to have a firm position, and you cannot succumb to this uh, extortion and threat. Um, you know, uh, whatever you know is uh, you know is is happening and so on. So uh, I I'm not optimistic about the fate of the Jewish agency. I do not know if they will decide on Friday that they will close it or there will be some more hearings. Uh, they can drag it also, you know, the, all the way to the Israeli elections and in this way, not, you know, directly also interfere uh, with the elections, uh, mm -hmm. which is also widely discussed in Israel, of course. Um, uh, but the, the the other part of this, uh, will there be continuation of pressure uh, against Israel in Syria? I mean, this is, of course, you know, this is question number one, uh, because, um, you know, we all knew uh, that this uh, romance uh, that, uh, uh, you know, it took place with Russia uh, since 2015, we had the deconfliction center, we were coordinating, you know, we had to coordinate with them, you know, the activities uh, in Syria and so on to prevent uh, uh, air disasters, uh, etc., uh, but we all knew that it will come to an end at some point, you know, because Israel is part of the American Western alliance, of course. Uh, it's not mm -hmm. a neutral country, you know, it's uh, uh, even Switzerland today is not a neutral country anymore, let alone Israel. Yes, I think it's uh, all very clear. Uh, and um, it's, uh, you know, the question is what will happen. It depends, uh, of course, and the readiness uh, of Russians to open another front in Syria, I do not mean a military front, but a front of confrontation, some kind of confrontation with a pro-Western power, um, and whether they will try to limit uh, Israel's activity in Syria. We do not see it for now. Uh, we are watching it very closely, and this is something that, yes, concerns uh, a lot uh, Israelis, Israeli army, uh, because it means that, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, Israel will have to make a choice, you know, to continue... Uh, acting against the Iranian threat that is rising in Syria, uh, or because of the Russian uh, determination to stop it, uh, will just you know stay away. I do not believe that any prime minister of Israel uh, will stop uh, the war against the Iranian threat. Uh, will stop uh, you know uh, will try to you know uh, stay away uh, in order to net not to uh, uh, cross somebody in uh, in Moscow. Okay, but. Uh, the implications, yes, they could be very serious. So it's beyond, it's very, way beyond the Jewish agency. You know, it's uh, just uh, a reminder uh, of the great power that Russia is. It still is a great power. I don't know if it will emerge after the war as a great power. Yes, this is something right. that we don't know yet. We don't know how this war will end. Uh, but for now, yes, it definitely projects its power in various parts of the world. Uh, and yes, here in Syria, it's something that uh, we have to take uh, into consideration. So hold that thought about Syria and the Russia-Middle East dimension. Uh, I want to just to delve a bit deeper into Israel's, I guess, overall Russia-Ukraine strategy. Since the start of the war, uh, I think a balancing act uh, is is the right way to put it. Uh, really from the start under former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, uh, you know, dancing through the raindrops, trying to uh, mediate between Moscow and Kiev at one point. Uh, you almost had this kind of good cop, bad cop routine between Bennett and Lapid. Uh, Bennett barely said the word Russia in public, uh, while Lapid came out as foreign minister very strongly against uh, Russian aggression and called it war crimes uh, in Ukraine. So given, I guess, 
the tensions over the past week and what you're laying out in terms of, I guess, these strains in Israel-Russia relations, do you, are we actually set for a shift in Israeli strategy vis-a-vis Russia and the Ukraine war, where, where Lapid may have internalized the fact that, okay, this is, um, these relations are inevitably going to sour for one reason or another, and you laid out, I think, uh, most of them. Uh, and he said, okay, we're, we're going to fully embrace the, I guess, Western pro-American orbit. Or do you think he now as prime minister will still, I guess, try to dance through the raindrops like Bennett before him? Um, well, it will very much depend on uh, what, uh, how will uh, Ru- Russia act, uh, not only in regards to the Jewish organizations uh, in Russia, but uh, also here in the Middle East. Um, okay. There are many directions in which they can inflict harm. And I'm also speaking about Lebanon and uh, tight relations that were developed between Russia and Lebanon and uh, specifically Hezbollah uh, during the war uh, in Syria. Uh, this is also Iraq, where the Russian uh, influence uh, keeps growing. Uh, and uh, this is the Palestinian track, you know, that uh, they are becoming more vocal about it, uh, more critical. You know, this is more of a diplomatic uh, sphere, of course, but uh, still, you know, we see that... Uh, you know, that uh, they, the, the pressure can come from many, many different directions. Right. By the way, I I just want to add, it was incredible, at least to my mind, that uh, the Russians remembered very quickly, I think it was in March and April, about the Palestinians, and they came out very publicly against Israel in terms of, uh, I guess, certain activities in the, in the Palestinian territories. And it was right after Lapid uh, blasted Russia for war crimes in Bucha. So I think the... Uh, I guess the re-embrace by Russia of the Palestinians, again, like everything, I guess, uh, coming from Moscow, very instrumental. Uh, the Palestinian issue, you know, I know it very well from uh, people that I had been in touch with them in the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs. At the mm-hmm. time, the Palestinian issue was never very high during the last decade, at least, on the Russian's agenda. They believe that uh, it will be very difficult to move something, to solve something. Uh, so uh, they, uh, you know, they just... Uh, uh, keep, uh, you know, with the uh, verbal uh, condemnations uh, of Israel. This is their line, you know, So, but they can become more active, you know, to summon, uh, you know, committees in the UN, for example, uh, and so on. Uh, and again, purely instrumentally, you know, not uh, out of uh, pure uh, love of the Palestinians and support of the Palestinians uh, and so on. Um, so the pressure could come. And by the way, you know, nothing is incidental, you know, in uh, Russia's uh, behavior. For example, I remember the visit of Gabi Ashkenazi, uh, then uh, the foreign minister, to Moscow a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even leave yet, you know, Moscow. Uh, and the uh, very uh, high uh, uh, top uh, delegation of Hezbollah uh, was already meeting uh, the uh, leaders of the uh, foreign ministry. Okay, <laughs> so it was just you know like to to, to you know to let the, the Israel know that well you know we uh, receive you, we talk to you, but we also speak with Hezbollah. We also friends with them, you know. So make out of it whatever you want. Uh, so you know I think that uh, uh, there is no intent on the Israeli side to escalate. You know, the the harm was inflicted, you know, by Russian side from the beginning, you know, with this um, Jewish agency thing. And then it got worse when it became clear that an Israeli delegation, uh, which, by the way, was mostly illegal, uh, it was delegation of legal experts, because since, you know, Moscow said that it's a legal issue, then, uh, you know, Lapid, uh, you know, decided to send a delegation of uh, 
uh, experts on international law, you know, and uh, all of that. Um, so perhaps there was Good some... Oh, yeah. <laughs> so perhaps there was some expectation in Moscow that the delegation will be more, you know, high in, higher in rank, you know. So there is no Minister of Foreign Affairs for now. So Lapid is still uh, continuing with his uh, job. So maybe they thought that Lapid will come, okay? Uh, and when he didn't, you know, so so they said, well, you know, so we don't want to receive your experts uh, uh, for, for the time being. But I think that, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, if there will be this... Uh, clear-cut decision to to shut down the Jewish agency, you know, one of the steps that um, can be uh, uh, performed by the Israeli side is, for example, the closing of the Russian Cultural Center in Tel Aviv, in Geula Street. Uh, it's not equal because, you know, the Russian Cultural Center doesn't play a, a big of a role here in Israel. Uh, and yet that could be something that, uh, you know, we didn't uh, kept silence. Uh, we uh, responded. Uh, but the response was was not that harsh. It was not that harsh. Uh, so, and then, you know, the, there will be a waiting time to see, you know, what is happening next. Uh, are there any arrests? Is there any pressure against the Jews, against the leaders of the Jewish agency there? Are the Jewish organizations, what is happening in Syria? And then, you know, according to, you know, unfortunately, you cannot plan for uh, a long time. You cannot formulate your policy and say, well, you know, this is what we are going to do. Uh, for now, it's still, uh, you know, reaction to, you know, what the other side is doing. Uh, I do not see, I do not think that there is a clear uh, decision to, right now, to break from the Balancing Act and to okay. start supporting uh, Ukraine. It's more of a threat. Uh, threat to the to the Russians, like, we'll see. We also have options. Uh, we can uh, start selling uh, Kela David, for example, you know, some air defense systems uh, to the Ukrainians. Or we can, you know... Yes, we can help them with whatever. And, uh, you know, you have to know that we also we have choices. Uh, but I do not believe that this is already a change in policy that was already, uh, you know, uh, approved, uh, uh, okayed and supported. Because also in this government, uh, you have to understand, you know, this government, it's interim gov government. Uh, and uh, there are parties like... Uh, um, Israel, our home, Israel Beitano, led by Viktor Lieberman, he is already expressing criticism uh, on Lapid, on uh, what he's doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So mm -hmm. he will not be supportive, you know, I'm you know, quite sure of this. There is also Zayf Elkin, uh, who used to be the interpreter, uh, the eternal interpreter between Putin and Netanyahu in his meetings, and uh, he's a and then, and then senior minister. Bennett, and yes. then for Bennett as well. And the then for, for Bennett as well. But yes, one time also for Bennett as well. Uh, and he's senior minister and uh, and the senior uh, a member of the uh, Blue and White. Um, no, not Blue and White, the New Hope. The New Hope right now, so they're merging into one party. Uh, mm -hmm. So Benny Gantz could also stay in the middle of this. We don't know exactly, you know, how, you know, if there will be this completely new approach that will be promoted by Lapid, whether it will be supported by the rest of the government. My guess that it will not happen so fast. Uh, still, you know, despite this provocation, obviously, I think that Israel will not be in a uh, hurry to, uh, you know, the, to, 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 con to conclude the divorce uh, mm -hmm. and uh, then to start uh, with the unknown future because uh, also it's election time. You know, it's uh, no good for anybody. Yes, I think that's an interesting point that you touched on earlier, which uh, 
you know, these strains over the past week in Israel-Russia relations has already been seized upon by the leader of the opposition, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, to criticize uh, the prime minister, Yair Lapid. Uh, and who knows, that might have been, I guess, maybe part of the rationale on Putin's end to actually create a crisis with Israel in order to at least influence uh, the upcoming election. Can't rule it out. It is very, 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 very much possible because, you know, the country that already tried to intervene the Israeli elections back in 2019 uh, through uh, social media, uh, it was that time. It was recorded attempt uh, to interfere with the Israeli elections. So now, you know, uh, it might be happening uh, in this uh, kind of uh, indirect way. Uh, But, uh, you know, what is happening, it's definitely putting more pressure on the interim government of Yair Lapid. And uh, if the crisis will grow, then he will have to, you know, from one side, he will perhaps get the votes of the Israelis of uh, Ukrainian origin and Russian origin, who, of course, support Ukraine. Uh, But on the other side, I think that uh, many people will question, uh, you know, his uh, ability to manage foreign affairs. Uh, And I'll just have to remind you that the majority of the Israelis, they do, do, uh, you know, they uh, have support for Ukraine. But they also prefer that Israel will stay away, they will, that it will not be actively involved, you know. So uh, yeah. so it might interfere very much uh, with the upcoming elections, yes. Yeah. Uh, and opinion polling in recent months since the start of the war showed, like you said, the Israeli public, uh, uh, the majority very supportive of Bennett's, uh, Bennett's policy of this uh, balancing act. Uh, well, also, I, I should mention, expressing deep sympathy for, uh, for Ukraine itself. Um, and yeah, I think it's also true to say that this is, I think, the first real, I guess, diplomatic test or crisis, whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, for Lapid as prime minister um, after uh, a very successful visit by President Biden here uh, two weeks ago. So it remains to be seen how, uh, how he chooses to manage. Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, visit our YouTube channel for short explainer videos and our 120 Project Israeli election news updates, engage with our Young Professional Network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. Subscribe to receive updates about all of this and more at israelpolicyforum.org slash subscribe. Ksenia, you also mentioned the the growing ties between Russia and Iran. Uh, we saw Putin himself in Tehran last week. Uh, it was his first foreign trip since the outbreak of the war, I think. Uh, we also saw the Americans... Uh, before Biden came to the Middle East the other week, uh, announcing this uh, or making public the the deal, potential deal between Iran and Russia, where Iran would sell Russia, uh, you know, attack 
UAVs and drones. So in your opinion, as an expert on both uh, Russia and the Middle East, how concerned should we be uh, at these growing Iran-Russia links? Um, and what, you know, you alluded to this just now, but what could it actually mean in terms of Tachlis Russian support for Iran and Hezbollah in the region? You know, what, what may we see coming down the pike? Yes. So first of all, a small remark. Uh, the visit to Iran, I think it was the second visit of uh, Putin foreign visit uh, since the beginning of war. The other okay. country that he visited was uh, Tajikistan. Uh, so, you know, the choice is not uh, huge right now for foreign visits. Uh, so it's uh, between, uh, you know, uh, Tehran, uh, Pyongyang, uh, Dushanbe, you know, and uh, Belarus, I think, Minsk, maybe. Yes, this is uh, mm-hmm. the possibility. Um, so, um, you know, Russia always had uh, close connections with Iranians, but it always knew how to handle them in order to not to get too close, you know, so what is too close? For example, they never expanded their trade to the degree that they would be dependent on Iranians. Uh, so in 2013, I remember, you know, the Iranians uh, uh, were very interested in purchasing the Russian uh, fighter jets. It was uh, Su-30 and uh, the Russians uh, decided not to go along. They said that, uh, you know, there is still a clause in the sanctions, although it was not clear, you know, whether it's completely sanctioned or not. And in, in any case, you know, they tried to benefit from it, but it was also, you know, it was also clear that there are also disputes uh, between uh, Iran and Russia. And also Russia, in my opinion, was not very much interested in the nuclear power that will grow next to its borders. So uh, just a few months ago, when Raisi, the new president of Iran, visited Moscow, he came back humiliated because he didn't, uh, he wasn't successful in signing even one MOU. Uh, with the Russians, uh, and uh, he was also denied the. Uh, he wanted the, he wanted to join to the Eurasian Union, uh, which Russia created. Uh, it's uh, it also includes Kazakhstan uh, and some other countries uh, in the post-Soviet, uh, you know, Asian space, uh, Central Asian space. Uh, so it was then, and now you know because of the lack of choice. Uh, the only um, market that is available for the Russian military industry, for now at least, yes, it's the Iranian market. Hmm. If they want to to sell something outside, uh, you know, there is a big question whether the Egyptians will buy now, whether the Saudis will buy now, the Emiratis. Uh, they might not, you know, feel, uh, you know, emotional connection to Joe Biden as a U.S. president, uh, <laughs> but it still doesn't mean uh, that they will go and uh, breach completely all of the understandings uh, that exist, uh, you know, between uh, the, their countries and, uh, and the U.S. Uh, as for Iran, they, you know, they also their choice is limited. Uh, and although Russia is basically stealing right now a chunk uh, of the Iranian uh, oil market because they used to sell oil to China and now Russia is selling discounted oil to China, yes, instead of the Iranians. Nevertheless... They are very hopeful. They were promised $40 million, uh, billion dollars of investments uh, in gas and oil industry, in development of this industry. Uh, they are counting on purchasing uh, the Russian weapons, despite, uh, you know, those weapons being quite compromised during the warfare uh, in Ukraine. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, every day I, I, I receive some information about Iranian fashion uh, stores opening up in Moscow instead of Zara, you know, you know, you they will now they will have Iranian networks, real stuff, you know, it's it's uh, it sounds like a joke, but it's not. Uh, so there is a repro- reproachment is inevitable. 
I think it's clear. So the question is whether when Iranians will demand, you know, their share, for example, that Russia will stop uh, Israeli air raids uh, against the Iranian targets uh, in Syria, uh, Moscow will fulfill. You know, it. Uh, it's still, you know, it's still, you know, unclear because still, of course, you know, Russia sees itself as much more superior, more important as a, a global power and so on. So it doesn't mean that they will do everything that Iranians would want them to. Uh, but I think that since the relations will grow, uh, you know, closer and closer and tighter, then of course it will be to the detriment to uh, Israeli, uh, of Israeli politicians. Uh, and uh, it is a worrying element uh, of Russian foreign policy in the Middle East. Uh, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, there is a fear, immediate fear is, of course, uh, Syria, but also other uh, Iranian uh, uh, you know, chapters, uh, you know, Islamic Jihad in Gaza, Hezbollah uh, in uh, Lebanon. We don't know, you know, how uh, this tandem will uh, use the tools uh, that it has today. Right. Uh, it's interesting to my mind that from the very beginning, I think even before the war started in Ukraine, uh, the Israeli leadership, and primarily Bennett and even Lapid, uh, they they highlighted two core Israeli interests in terms of Russia and the Ukraine war. Number one was, uh, I guess, to safeguard the Jewish communities uh, in Ukraine and also in Russia. Uh, and then number two, to safeguard this deconfliction mechanism between Israel and Russia uh, over Syria uh, to maintain at least some Israeli freedom of operations against Iranian targets in Syria. Uh, and now both both those core Israeli interests uh, are potentially at risk, uh, which is which is not a small matter, I think, for Jerusalem. So something obviously to uh, to keep an eye on in the weeks ahead. Uh, Ksenia, I wanted to shift slightly to, uh, I guess, the debate closer to home uh, inside the Russian-speaking or I guess the former Soviet community in Israel. Uh, regarding Ukraine and Russia, and really how they view the the past six months, um, I may be mistaken. I think, uh, I guess, before the war, at least, uh, Putin Putin was fairly popular. No, um, in in the former Soviet community in Israel, uh, has that changed in recent months? Has the sympathy, as you mentioned earlier, completely swung in Ukraine's favor? Um, you know, uh, I think that uh, the situation is very fluid. Uh, it changes all the time, and if uh, you know, if we were speaking in the first weeks uh, after the war was launched, uh, and uh, the news about Ukraine, basically, you know, uh, they took over everything. Uh, the, um, the 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 rise in the you know prices for oil, uh, the uh, fall of the government, you know, the upcoming elections, you know, it was just Ukraine, and that lasted for about two months. And during these two months, I saw that. Uh, you know, we had a tremendous change in public opinion in Israel, of course, you know, against Putin's Russia and for Ukrainian. Um, and then, you know, when it changed and the mass media in Israel basically stopped covering at large, they stopped covering Ukraine. Uh, you can hardly see something, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the Tagid Khadisra, the 11th channel uh, is doing great work uh, and uh, it's related to radio stations as well. Uh, you know, some specific uh, uh, correspondents and uh, reporters, you know, in uh, Ch Channel 12, uh, such as Arad Nir, you know, he doesn't forget about Ukraine in every, uh, you know, program that he uh, hosts. Uh, mm -hmm. But generally, it's out. 
And since you don't see it anymore, and you just hear about, you know, the Russian threats, uh, and you understand that, uh, you know, there can be complications uh, for Israel, for the Russian Jews, for the Jewish agency. So I think that uh, even though, you know, the as I told, uh, said, you know, the majority of Israelis, you know, they are sympathizing with Ukrainians. You have enormous amount of volunteers. Uh, you know, you, you you have in every city, you know, you have a, a volunteering center, you know, for the Ukrainians and uh, humanitarian aid is going and it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it still happens. Uh, but at large, the Ukrainian, the Israelis would want for Israel to stay away from this conflict. Nobody knows how, you know, it's possible to achieve it, you know. So uh, uh, it's easier said than done, you know, not to uh, not to be involved. So uh, uh, if you are checking the uh, policy, you know, the initial policy of uh, Israel on Ukraine since the beginning of the war, it did not change significantly at all, you know. So uh, the Russia, of course, uh, can uh, fume over the refusal of the Israeli banks uh, to... Uh, uh, achieve, you know, to, to accept the Russian money uh, and to turn uh, away, you know, some uh, bank accounts that wanted to switch from there to here. Uh, but this is something that all of the banks all across uh, the Western world are doing. You know, you don't have to have sanctions for that. Uh, and yet, you know, so you have Russian oligarchs uh, that can still come here and they do come here uh, and they can land in Ben-Gurion even with their private jets. You know, so there is a limitation on the amount of days, <laughs> but this is technicalities, uh, not more than that. You know, so uh, I think that the pr previous prime minister, but also Yair Lapid, they understand that the public opinion is for, you know, providing more humanitarian aid for Ukrainians, perhaps. Yes. Uh, yeah, maybe, you know, to receive some uh, wounded soldiers from the Ukrainian army here in the hospitals. Also, yes. Uh, but um, to do something more than that, and anger Russia and provoke uh, its uh, fury uh, against uh, the Jewish state, you know, that might mm -hmm. be very different, very, very different, and it's uh, not acceptable, at least not by the majority. And do you think this sentiment is shared by Israelis with roots in the in the former Soviet Union? Or are they, are they uh, I guess, in line with, I guess, mainstream Israeli thinking? Or are they, I guess, more pro-Ukrainian or perhaps more pro-Russia? than, I guess, the average Israeli, because they, I assume, still follow the issue very closely, unlike uh, unlike the the regular Israeli or Hebrew language press. So, um, um, you know, uh, there were polls uh, specifically among the Russian-speaking uh, Israelis, uh, the majority of whom, by the way, did not come from Russia itself, mm -hmm. but from Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, you know, and other uh, republics that became independent states uh, in the beginning of the 90s. Many still have relatives and friends, and they follow not only via Telegram channels or the Russian media or Ukrainian media, they follow through their loved ones, you know, and people who never ever thought about Ukraine, uh, and there was no attachment, you know, because they made Aliyah uh, in a very early age, you know, and they didn't visit and so on, suddenly mm -hmm. became involved. Suddenly they become volunteers. Suddenly they uh, were going to Ukraine to help uh, in the hospitals, Oh, in the border, you know, and so on. So, yes, of course, they are more deeply uh, immersed in all of this. Um, I would say that, you know, there is still uh, a minority uh, of uh, Putin supporters and Russia supporters. And you do see them, see them. Yes, you do see them on the social media. There were also some limited uh, uh, demonstrations of uh, not more than a few dozens 
participants and pro-Ukrainian demonstrations gather thousands of participants uh, yeah, in the, in the you know, yes, yeah, so much bigger, of course. Uh, so uh, I think that, uh, you know, those who support Ukraine among the, you know, approximately one million, maybe less, you know, of uh, uh, Russian speakers in Israel, the supporters of Ukraine, yes, they are majority, and they would want for the Israeli government uh, to be more involved. And, um, you know, there is also a lobby for uh, supplying uh, at least defensive weapon uh, to, the, to the Ukrainians, definitely. You know, I know that there were meetings uh, with the ministers and uh, there is lobby that is called the um, Israeli Friends of Ukraine. It's a very active uh, organization that was created in 2014 when Russia first invaded Ukraine and occupied uh, Crimea. Um, and uh, they are becoming a very important factor, you know, because they mobilize people. And uh, we shall see how it will uh, play out uh, during the elections, by the way. Right now, you know, you already see these campaigns uh, online uh, that uh, call for the Russian-speaking Israelis who support Ukraine not to vote for the politicians who were either numb, like Netanyahu, uh, on Ukrainian issue or... Uh, uh, express this uh, dual uh, approach of well, you know, there are you know there are some evidence that Russians present and some evidence that Ukrainians present. Uh, this is of course a Victor Lieberman, you know. So uh, mm -hmm. the, the, it's very highly uh, it's a, 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 it's a, something that is uh, discussed uh, widely, um, and uh, we'll see how it will play out in the upcoming elections by November first. Yeah, yeah, it'd be very interesting if this was a a key issue that swung votes uh, from one party to the next. Uh, something to keep an eye on. Uh, Ksenia, final question, and maybe a bit of a more personal one. Uh, like you said, you made Aliyah at the age of 14 from Moscow uh, in 1991. So I'm curious, I wanted to give our listeners a sense of what that experience was like for you, coming to a new country, uh, in a new part of the world. Uh, and I think it's Maybe fair to say, in your case, uh, you really embraced the Middle East, right? Academically, professionally, personally. Uh, so, what was that like? Uh, making making that big change in that journey uh, in 1991, and then what was it like? I guess throughout the 90s uh, for you and your family. So you know, I will celebrate my 31st birthday in Israel uh, in uh, August, um, and we came in. Thank you. Yes, uh, it is a celebration, you know, by the way, uh, you know, uh, we do a market, you know, at, uh, at home. And um, I can tell you that um, it was very hot. Uh, it was in, uh, August 14, you, you, you can imagine you are stepping out from uh, Ben Gurion Airport <laughs> uh, and it's crazy hot. And yes. uh, you, you have no reference. Uh, you look at this country and you know nothing about it. You know, I knew more about ancient Egypt than I did about modern Israel. So I think no Ole today is experiencing what we experienced back then, some 30, 35 years ago. Uh, I'm happy that people who are coming today, you know, they have more realistic expectations. They know what they will see, how it will feel. Many of them visited uh, Israel and so on. But back then, for me and my family, it was like, uh, it was a shock. For me, it was the first travel uh, outside of the Soviet Union. It was still Soviet Union. Um, and we just, you know, my mother took the decision that we shall go. And by the way, he took this decision, took this decision after she visited uh, this uh, big exhibition uh, in Vedenha uh, exhibition uh, place uh, in Moscow. Uh, there was an exhibition about the Jewish life in 1990. And, you know, uh, until the day uh, to talk about your Judaism, 
to say openly that you're a Jew, uh, it was always like a curse word. Actually, it was a curse word, you know, so nobody spoke about it. Uh, I was cursed once as a Zhidovka uh, at school when I was in second grade. I didn't know what it means. And I came home and my grandmother explained to me uh, what it means. And suddenly you have this renaissance of the Jewish life. And suddenly it's okay to talk about your, you know, that you're Jewish. Uh, and to learn about your history and your heritage. Uh, and uh, during this exhibition, my mom met a few uh, people. Uh, they become friends. Uh, and they decided together to make Aliyah, a few families together. So that's, uh, you know, how it happened for us. My mom knew, I think she had some kind of prophetic uh, moment because back then still, you know, nothing dramatic happened in the Soviet Union, you know. So, you know, there were changes and it was all very optimistic. And yet she felt that this, you know, that the ground was shaking. And we started to receive also some anti-Semitic mail uh, on our uh, mailbox, you know, at home and so on. So all of these elements, they made her think that, you know, so uh, it's it will be a good idea to leave and to not to go to just any place, to go to Israel because you know this is the the Jewish home, um, and um, you know despite the you know not very easy absorption, you know not for her, not for me, uh, because simply because we didn't have anybody here, there were no relatives, there was nobody to support, uh, and uh, again today for most of those who come from Ukraine and Russia, there is somebody. It's so important. Uh, and when one million come at once, like it happened in the 90s, well, you know, it was quite a miracle that nobody slept on the streets and nobody was hungry. Okay, so you have to give that respect to the government of uh, Shamir uh, back then and then Rabin, uh, that they took care of the basic needs. Uh, but then there is nostalgia. There is this feeling of uh, home being homesick. Uh, there is uncertainty because we didn't know if we were able to to come back and visit. You know, not to come back and stay there, but to visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some time, after some time, it became possible. But today, when these horrific things are happening uh, in uh, all of this uh, Russian uh, uh, post-Soviet uh, space, Russia, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, you know, I feel like I made Aliyah the second time again. And this time I cannot come back. You know, it's uh, not because I can't, but because there is nothing to to, to look for there anymore. Um, Putin ruined three countries at once. Uh, it's Russia, it's Ukraine, and it's very much also Belarus. That, of course, is a part of this uh, uh, Moscow alliance. Uh, and uh, this is extremely sad. But at the same time, I'm just uh, thinking about my mother, uh, who was so brave at this time in 1990, just jumped into the water and decided to, you know, to have a new start for our family, for myself mostly, you know, for for herself. And um, this is probably what many Jewish families will be doing today. Uh, We already have increased in uh, Aliyah. And now after this uh, dramatic events with the Jewish agency, I'm so very much sure that more, more will come will come and join us here in Israel or, or go some other place, you know, as, uh, as long as they will be safe. Right. Uh, I guess the reason for being for, for Israel uh, as the homeland and safe haven for the Jews uh, very much came into play. Uh, I guess in, in recent months, uh, I saw it myself in my own reporting, you know, uh, refugees, Jewish refugees, and not only Jewish refugees, um, uh, non-Jewish refugees as well from Ukraine and uh Underreported, uh, a large wave also from Russia. Russian Jews actually uh, coming to Israel. I think even in uh, more than Ukrainians, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I yeah, think yeah. that they were even more. Absolutely, um, Ksenia. Uh, on that note, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. 
today, uh, and I'm glad we made this happen. Uh, and I think, I think on most issues, but especially this issue, uh, it's really important to get a expert and in-depth voice uh, to kind of break it all down. So we do appreciate it. Thank you very much, Neri. It was a pleasure being with you, having this conversation, and thank you for the very deep and interesting questions. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Shalom. Okay, that was Ksenia Svetlova. Many thanks to her again for her generous time and her insights. Also, a special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening.